0: If you would think back over the course of your life, I'm sure that one of the most vivid and maybe traumatic memories that you have is when you lost the first person who was really close to you. And I don't mean a parent or a grandparent. I don't mean somebody necessarily who was relationally close to you, but I mean the person who was close to you in age. You remember the first time that somebody who was your age died? Maybe when you are, were a preteen or a teenager, and then it dawned on you. People your age can die too. And it dawned on you that you maybe weren't as invincible as you thought. dawned on you that you were immortal. For me, it was a young lady. I say young lady, really a girl that attended the church that I did as a kid off and on. Really, her cousins attended our church, and they would come Sometimes for months at a time, and they would often go with us if we had youth events or youth retreats and trips and things like that. And this young lady passed away in a car wreck at age 18. She was 18, I was 16, and I remember thinking, that's my age. How can somebody that close to my age die? My best friend at that time, Mark, my best friend growing up as a teenager, he died in a car wreck when he was 24 and I was 22. My sister had um, a baby, my niece Johanna, born with a genetic defect and she lived for 63 minutes and then she died. And that's not just my life. It's not as if my life has been somehow beset by tragedy, but it's all of our lives. We all know people like that, people that died too young, people that like roses that were cut before they had the chance to bloom. Their life expired really before they ever even had the chance to live. And when that happens, we think to ourselves, why is it that people pass away so young? Naturally, it fills us with a lot of questions. And one of those questions is often, why do the good die young? Why, do the, why does God take the good so young? That was a question that was turned in our box. And, and really, it kind of surprised me when I read it. Why is it that God takes the young? Why do the good die young? And I want to try to give you an answer to that question, tonight, if I can. And really, I don't think there is a good answer to that question as much as there are some lessons that we need to learn when it does happen. And I want to show you those lessons from 2 Samuel chapter 1. And what you find in 2 Samuel chapter number 1 is you find David mourning the loss of his friend Jonathan expressing those same thoughts and those same griefs and those same pains, saying this is somebody that was taken too early. Somebody was cut down in the prime of their life. What does it feel like and what does David think when that happens? I think we can hear in 2 Samuel chapter number 1. So turn with me there if you would. 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 17. Second Samuel chapter number 1 and verse number 17. The Bible says that David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided, They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. When Queen Elizabeth passed away back in the fall of last year, the code word that went out over all the official government channels to inform the government officials and begin the preparations for her funeral and then to immediately begin the preparations for the ascension of King Charles was the code word, London Bridge has fallen. The queen, the monarch, had died. There's a very real sense in which you could write those words in the margin of your Bible in 2 Samuel chapter number 1. London Bridge has fallen. The king is dead. Even though here it's not the king of the United Kingdom, it's not the king of England, it's the king of Israel. Saul, the very first king of Israel, has died at the end of 1 Samuel. Saul, the man who reigned as the first king of Israel for 40 years, four decades he reigned as the king of Israel. Saul, who began with so much potential, Saul who was head and shoulders above every other individual in Israel. Saul who was so handsome, so young, so promising, at times so brave. Saul who was so, at times, filled with the Holy Spirit to do the work that God had given him to do. Saul who, at least to the people, represented the hopes of a monarchy and a king who would lead them the way kings led other nations. But Saul who went into a downward spiral of insecurity. Saul who was consumed with jealousy. Saul who succumbed to insanity. Saul, the king, is dead. Saul is mortally wounded in battle with the Philistines. And before his enemies had the chance to take his body or at least do whatever terrible things they might do to him, Saul takes his own life. But in the same battle where Saul dies as a villain, his son Jonathan dies as a hero. If you know the story of David's life, then you know that Jonathan was his best friend. Jonathan was loyal. Jonathan was brave. Jonathan was noble. Jonathan was dedicated. Jonathan was a good man. Jonathan was a faithful man. Jonathan stood by David even though it meant standing against his father Saul. Jonathan stood with David knowing that God would give the kingdom over to David even while he knew that that meant he would never inherit the throne and the crown that sat upon his father's head. Jonathan loved David. And apart from his relationship to David, Jonathan really was a faithful and a godly man. David summarizes his life well here when he says that the bow of Jonathan turned not back. That is just a poetic and an ancient way of saying that Jonathan died with his face toward the enemy. This is a way of saying that Jonathan was always ready to fight for the people of God And he knew which direction to fight. Y'all, it's one thing to want to fight. It's something else to know who you need to fight and when. And Jonathan knew, a courageous man. But here, the flame of his life has been extinguished too early in a way that seems needless, in a way that seems to David unexplainable. And in 2 Samuel, David takes his grief and he takes his pain and he sets it to a song. David was a musician, a songwriter. And he writes his pain into this hymn, into this lamentation. And he instructs the people of Judah to sing this, this national tragedy. When your king is killed in battle, that's a national disaster. This national disaster is set to music in this song that expresses the grief and the loss and the shock and the pain that has suddenly come upon the people of Israel. The Bible talks about Saul's shield in verse number 21, not being anointed with oil. That was a common practice before they would go into battle to anoint their shields with oil so that the blow of a sword would glance off of it. And here, this is David's way of saying this happened suddenly before Saul was really prepared, before Jonathan was really ready. Death just overtook them. Now, we know tonight, or at least I hope that you know, that God had a bigger plan in all of this, that God is working through the death of Saul and Jonathan to get to the reign of David. We understand that. But in the moment, David is grieving over the loss of his father-in-law and more importantly his best friend and as he grieves i think there are lessons that we should take as we try to process why do the good die young the first lesson in this passage of scripture i think without without a doubt you can see that death is unfair death is unfair it's not fair for jonathan to die Jonathan is faithful. Jonathan is loyal. Jonathan is the kind of person that you want by your side in every battle you're in, in every fight that you have to face. Jonathan is the kind of person that David would have loved to have had in his cabinet as king if he would have had the opportunity, but he didn't have the opportunity. In fact, Jonathan and David were so close that he makes the statement in verse number 26 that your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, not surprisingly, a lot of modern Bible I hate to say Bible scholars, Bible teachers, um, a lot of jacklegs legs have looked at this and have tried to um, place a homosexual relationship where, there is, where there's no evidence for one. Let me give you three reasons why that doesn't work here. Number one, it doesn't work because this is poetic language. David is writing poetry. He's writing, a mu- writing music in the midst of his grief, and he's describing his love for Jonathan in hyperbolic terms. Second, it doesn't work, really, because if you know the story of David, then you know that David really didn't have good relationships with women. And he probably really was closer to Jonathan than he was, even to some of his wives, plural. And third, it's really a shame that there's no kind of devotion, that there's no kind of loyalty and no kind of friendship in our society that can't be hypersexualized. And I think it proves that we have real, real issues in our society. But what David is saying is that someone he loved has been taken to him taken from him early and unfairly, somebody's life has been cut tragically short. And if you have ever seen a casket that could be carried in both of your arms, if you've ever had the extreme heartache of holding a deceased baby, if you've ever been to a teenager's funeral and stood in the long line with a bunch of high school students as they say goodbye to a friend, then you understand what David feels here, that death is unfair. And we feel that when somebody young passes away. We feel it very acutely. Why do the good die young? And that's a struggle that God's people have to wrestle with. Why do bad things happen to good people? If you want a good answer to that question, go back and listen to the message last week. It's the best I can give you. But we still deal with that. Why is it that it seems like, apart from death, why is it that it seems like the righteous suffer? And the unrighteous seem to have it so good. Do y'all ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like even though you're not perfect and even though you don't always get it right, that you're trying your best to serve Jesus, that you're trying to love Him, you're trying to do what's right, and it feels like you're riding your bike uphill every day? And you're stressed and you're stretched and you're straining and you're tired and you're doing every single thing you can to make it and you fall off and you scrape your knees and you bleed and you get back up and you just keep trying while everybody else is just coasting. People that don't come to church and people that don't care and people that aren't faithful to the Lord and people that are engaged in sin. Man, their life just seems so easy. Why is that? Look with, you, with me real quick in your Bible to Psalm chapter 73. This is another psalm. This is not written by David, but this is written by Asaph where he takes up this theme. I just want to show you that this is something that God's people have to figure out and have to work through. Psalm chapter number 73. And he begins musically with what we just sang. God is so good. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, don't look any further just yet. Look up here. Truly God is good to Israel. Asaph knew that. Asaph believed it. You know it, and you believe it. In fact, I think that that's one of the three foundational cornerstones of Old Testament theology. The first is that there is one God. The second is that that God speaks. God says, let there be light. God speaks and forms a nation out of Abraham. There is one God, that one God speaks, and that one God is good. God is good. Truly, God is good to Israel. Look back over the history of our people. I see how God has been faithful to us. God is good to Israel. Verse 2, but as for me, there it is. That's where we live. That's where we get out of the realm of theoretical theology, and we get down in the mud with our pain. Yes, God is good, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, jealous of the proud, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now understand, that's a good thing in the ancient world to be fat and sleek. That's not exactly a compliment today. But it would have been then for you to tell your wife, "Maybe you look really fat and sleek tonight." That would have been well. Thank you. I've been really working on, you know. That was that was. It just it just meant it just meant that they had plenty to eat, right? They had plenty of resources, and they didn't have to work it off because they had servants that were doing the work, so they could just lay around and get fat and sleek. But this is this is the point of Asaph. Asaph's point is, I look around at these other people, and they've got more than they need, and I'm barely getting by. How is this right? How is this fair? Really, how is it right? How is it right that Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, has like more money than, than Spain, and here I am trying to preach the Word of God and serve Jesus, and I drive a Hyundai Elantra with 130,000 miles on it. How's that right? Does that make sense to you? Does, it, does the math work out? And Asaph gets fed up with it, and sometimes we get fed up with it too, don't we? Especially Especially when you're not just frustrated with the year, the car you drive, but when you're trying to figure out why does a teenager pass away? Or why does a young person die suddenly? Or why why are there kids at Children's Hospital right now that are on chemotherapy? Why those things? We wonder, God, why is it this way? But I think it's important for us to know. It's important for us to know that suffering and grief and pain, they disorient us. That is, we often filter our understanding of reality through our pain, and we don't see things as they really are. I remember Brother Ray telling me one time, and and if I get this this wrong, Brother, I'm sorry, but y'all check with Ray after this is over to verify this. But I remember Brother Ray telling me about when he first joined the Navy and when they first went out on those big boats for the first time, and they got these guys from all over the country, you know, city guys from New York and farm boys from Iowa and Ray from Mount Olive, Alabama, and they... They put them on these, on these big destroyers and aircraft carriers and cruisers, and they send them out in the middle of the ocean. And for the first couple days, they don't do anything. Do you know why they don't do anything? Because everybody's sick. Everybody has to adjust. Is that pretty close? Everybody has to adjust to rocking back and forth. And everybody has to get everything, you know, nasty out of their system. And everybody has to get used to being disoriented and learning a new way to walk. And sometimes when we suffer, it's like being thrown in the middle of the ocean, isn't it? And we feel overwhelmed, we feel perplexed, and we distort reality based upon the pain that we feel. And we're knocked off balance. Something in our spiritual equilibrium goes haywire. Here's the truth, folks. Not to be callous to anybody's suffering, and not to be callous to your suffering if there's been loss at an early age somewhere in your life, but the good don't always die young, do they? I know some good people in their 90s. I mean, they come to church with us every week, right? That's just the truth. Often, very, very good people get to live a very, very long time. Think about Abraham. Abraham was old when he started living for the Lord. Moses was 80 when he started pursuing the Lord. A lot of really, really great people are blessed with really, really long lives. One of the most amazing men that I ever met was a man by the name of Melvin Stamey. I met him when I was about, I guess I would have been about 12, and he was 104 years old. He was a World War I veteran and he was still trucking right along in life. He would outlived three wives, outlived all of his kids, and he just kept going. He might still be alive. I don't know. He might be 130 now, and he loved the Lord and loved Jesus, but there, there are people that are blessed like that. But then there are also people like Jesus who died at 33. We don't always understand. It's not always fair. Death is unfair, but I think David will also show us the second lesson, and that is that death is unmanageable. Death is unmanageable. David experiences this as if it's all beyond his control. This is all beyond him. In other words, something has happened that David never would have chosen for Jonathan. In fact, David never would have chosen this for Saul. As much as Saul hated David, as many times as Saul tried to kill David, I know that David did not want to kill Saul because he had the opportunity to do it, and he didn't do it. This is not something that David would have chosen, but it's something that did happen. Why? Because ultimately, folks, death is unmanageable. It's not up to us to decide how long anybody lives. In fact, biblically, the Bible would tell us that those things are in the hand of the Lord, and that's the best place for them to be. Y'all, the Bible would make it clear to me and to you that I don't have any more control over the day that I leave this world than I did the day that I came into this world. That's not up to me to decide. And so the Lord may bless me with a long life. I may live to be like Brother Stamey. I may live to be up to be 100. Or I may not make it to 40. We just simply don't know. That's not up to us for to decide. And we ought to thank God it's not up for us to decide. Think about Acts chapter number 12. You remember the story in Acts chapter number 12? King Herod is, has figured out that it's going to increase his poll numbers if he starts persecuting the church. And so he arrests James, and he has him beheaded. Then he arrests Peter, and he's about to have Peter beheaded. Remember that? And then the church prays, and the angel comes to visit Peter in the jail, and Peter breaks out of jail. Peter goes to the prayer meeting, knocks on the door of the prayer meeting where they're praying for him. And the people open the door. The little servant girl, Rhoda, opens the door, and she says, Peter's out here. God answered your prayer. And she goes back and tells the church. And they say, no, that's just a ghost. That can't be what it is. They've already killed him, and so let's pack it up. That's a a paraphrase. That's an NCV. That's a new car version, but it's pretty close. But the story tells us that one of the disciples of the Lord, James, one of the original 12, he's beheaded, dies early dies young. Peter, another one of the first disciples, the Lord spares him and lets him live. Why? Why is that? It seems random to us. It seems unfair to James. But I'd also say five minutes in heaven, James would say, it's all right. It's just fine the way that it is. But the truth is that, f- that, that death is unmanageable. It's not up to us to control. And it's not up to us to determine. Look with me in your Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is uh, a great and a wise treatment of life and so many of the issues related to suffering and death. And you should familiarize yourself with the book of Ecclesiastes unless you're easily depressed. If you're easily depressed, just read through it quickly once a year and just don't worry about it. <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter number 8. Now remember what the writer of Ecclesiastes has already said in Ecclesiastes chapter number 3, that there is a time to be born and a time to die. Now he says here in Ecclesiastes 8.8, eight, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. No man has power to retain the spirit the spirit or power over the day of death. In other words, when the Lord decides to call me home, I'm going. I'm going. And that's not known to me. We should thank God it's not known to us. That's in the Lord's hands. Previously, he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse number 3, or rather verse number 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is glad. Here the writer of Ecclesiastes picks up on some ancient wisdom that we resist, and that is that there are things that you will learn in sorrow that you will not learn at a comedy club. And one of those things that you will learn is about the brevity of life. One of those things that you will learn is about your own limitations, your own mortality, the reality that you are a creature that is going to die. And that life, no matter how long it is, listen to me, no matter how long life is, life is always too short. We see, it, we see it more clearly when somebody dies at 16 or 17 or 25 or 35 than we do at 85. But some of you know, by looking back over six or seven decades, that those six or seven decades go by fast. And James says in James chapter number 4 that our life is a vapor, right? It's not going to be long until you're going to be able to go outside on a chilly morning and you're going to breathe and you're going to see the air escape from your lungs and it's going to evaporate right in front of your eyes. James says, and the Word of God says, that that's your life. It's a warm breath on a cold morning. It's here for a moment and then it's gone. That's your life. And the Bible tells us that we should learn to number our days, that we should learn to apply our hearts to this wisdom, that life is always brief and life is always short. Aren't you glad you came to church tonight? I know this is so encouraging. Look with me in Psalm chapter number 90. Psalm chapter number 90. 90, 90. Psalm 90 and then verse number 10. Psalm 90 and verse number 10. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Verse number 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 80 years is a long time, but it's a short life. It's a long time, but it's a short life. And there's wisdom, there's real wisdom biblical wisdom in realizing that life is short and that life is always short and that it's not up to us to determine the length of our days now i know from where we sit tonight that we all feel like we're going to live forever i know we believe in heaven and hell and i know we believe that one day we're going to die experience tells us that we're paying attention science tells us that we know we're not going to live forever but church listen to me I believe, as your pastor, one of the most important things that I can ever do for any of you is prepare you to die. I've been the pastor of this church for five years, and five years ago, there were people here on Wednesday nights that are in heaven now. And in another five years, some of us may be in heaven. And it may not be five years, it may be six months. Some of us may not live to see the new year. We don't know. That's not up to us to determine. But what is up to us to determine with the grace of the Lord is to look to Him, to trust in Him, to live for Him while we can, and to make sure that we really live while we're alive. You see, a life is never really measured by its length. A life is measured by its depth. A life is measured by its weight. A life is measured by what we do with the days that we have, not the amount of days that we're given. For David, life and death seem to be so unfair Life and death, they seem to be so unmanageable. He processes, though, the death of Jonathan, and he reaches this final lesson that life and death seem to be so unnatural. He says three times in this text the mighty are fallen. The mighty are fallen. The mighty are fallen. And he's calling our attention to what should be a paradox the mighty don't fall. Not in battle. The mighty excel in battle. The mighty triumph in battle. The strong survive, right? That's the way the world works. But not in this case. Jonathan, the capable warrior, is dead. The mighty have fallen. It's unnatural. And if you've ever, if you've ever been to that funeral of the high schooler who went around the curve too fast and never made it back home, if you've ever been with the family that's lost a child to cancer, then you know that there's something really unnatural, really wrong about burying a child, right? And people say that. They say a parent's not supposed to outlive their children. And that's true. Death, when it comes for somebody young, it seems so unnatural. But why does it seem so unnatural? Folks, it seems unnatural because it is unnatural. Not just that somebody would die young, but that a human being would die at all. You do realize that as creatures, we were made to live forever. That we're not supposed to die. That death is something that is foreign to humanity. Death is something that has been injected into us as a curse upon our sin. Death is something that we are not supposed to experience. And when we feel the grief and the loss and the pain of death, it is a reminder that it is not supposed to be this way. Look with me again to Romans chapter number five. Your thumbs are getting a workout, and that's the way it ought to be on a Wednesday night. Romans chapter five. Verse number 12. Romans chapter five and verse number 12. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Here the Apostle Paul gives us a theological explanation and reasoning for why there is death and why is there death and the answer is because we are descendants of Adam and even though we did not literally personally participate in Adam's sin we still sin in Adam we sin like Adam and we will die like Adam to a person and we know that a person does not have to be old to die do they Because they are descendant of Adam, death touches all of us. But, Paul says in verse number 15, that is not the whole story. Death has reigned since Adam, but God has butted into the story of death in humanity. Because the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. In other words, if one man disobeying did all this, what could one man obeying do? And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you follow Paul's meaning here? What Paul says is that Adam in the Garden of Eden represented all of humanity. And through his disobedience, Adam separated us from God. And through that separation, Adam brought death into all humanity. Over all of his descendants, young and old, they were born into sin and born into death, so much so that a human being does not even have to be born to die. But the story of the gospel is that our God was born into this world as a descendant of Adam who could die. So that whereas the first Adam sold us out in the Garden of Eden, the second Adam bought us back at Calvary. Where the first Adam disobeyed God and brought death, the second Adam obeyed God and brought life. Where the first Adam rejected God and brought condemnation, the second Adam followed God and brought salvation. Where the first Adam declared all of us guilty in sin, the second Adam declared all of us just and righteous in Him so that in Him we participate in death at the cross, we participate in His righteous life, we participate in His resurrection, and because of that, Paul says, we participate in the reign of grace. So that now we have conquered death, young or old, in Christ. We have conquered death in him. So that as Paul, amen. So that as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 13, even though we sorrow, we do not sorrow as those without hope. Why? Because death is a defeated foe. Folks, the central message of the Bible is that a man died at 33 with what we would think of his best years ahead of him, his life ahead of him, his greatest accomplishments ahead of him. My goodness, he wasn't even married. He didn't have children. And at 33, his life was cut out. But that man was not a victim to death. That man is the one who made a victim out of death. That man is the one who conquered death because that man is the true and the better Adam who came as the son of Adam and the son of God to taste death for every man and to conquer death for his people. So that now what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 is true for all of us. And that is that one day this mortal will put on immortality. One day this perishable will put on the imperishable. One day this corruptible will put on incorruption. And on that day it will come to pass the saying that death has been swallowed up in victory. So, O grave, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who always giveth us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving sinners like us who are caught up in a world of sin and death who do feel the pain of tragedy tragedy we can't always explain and tragedy that we can't undo but lord the tragedy of sin and death that we could never undo you have undone in christ and god you have given us hope in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our death and god we hope today not only in the sure and the certain hope of the resurrection of the dead but we hope in jesus who is the resurrection and the life And who has promised us, his people, that if we would live and believe in him, we would never die, but we would live forever. And so, God, we thank you for the victory that is ours in Jesus. God, I know that when we talk about these things, there are people here that have been deeply affected and touched by this kind of pain. They've lost someone dear to them far too early. God, I know that I cannot provide answers, but God, you can provide hope and comfort. And I pray that you would, as only you can, give assurance. Lord, I pray where anything hurtful or painful has been unsettled tonight, I pray that Jesus would be a balm in Gilead to those that are hurting. Comfort hearts. Go with us tonight as we leave this place and be with us on our Lord's day as we meet again. Father, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.